Well, hello there, peculiars. I have a friend with me here today. Um, yes, this is a this is a Fowler. This is a reproduction Fowler bust. I actually did have access to uh, one of the originals when I worked at the District Medical History Museum. But um, he's just going to be like holding court with us today, uh, kind of hanging out in case we need him for you know illustrative purposes. So he's here with us tonight because we are here for our un-Valentine's Day, our not a Valentine's Day party, to celebrate phrenology and chocolate and wearing black and an organ of murder. And so Davey and I are both super excited to bring on board Courtney for organ of murder. There you are. Hello. I feel like we need a little like puff of smoke that happens when we bring you guys on. <laughs> I feel like we need some special effects for a night. Yeah, effect, yeah, we totally right? do. Mm -hmm. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, um, one of the first things I want to introduce, of course, is that because this is our un-Valentine's Day party, we wanted to have uh, appropriate, appropriate cocktail beverages and appropriate chocolate. So thing. Oh, thank you. Um, we are having a lovely um Goodbye, thing. Uh, a lovely wine, but it's not just wine, it's a wine cocktail. So those who participated uh, in the show got a recipe and it has, uh, it's red wine mixed with um, uh, creme de cassis and it's got a little cherry in it. And it's just, it's a, it's a lovely, it's a lovely concoction. So let's see how many folks, we've got some people saying hello. Uh, dig the hat, well, thank you. Um, <laughs> And uh, let's see, anyone anyone out there doing the drink with me tonight? Because uh, I know you have a little wine with you as well, Courtney, do you not? I, I have another cocktail. Um, another I, cocktail? I went for something that looks as bloody as I could get it without I red wine it. or creme de cassis on hand. Um, oh, so love it. Someone said they had to substitute Chambord for the creme de cassis, which is completely I, fair. I mean, there are worse things, really. That's true. Oh, Leanne has already spotted it. She's already spotted yeah. the Squid chest decal. Yes, I am. I am in the spirit. I am feeling very <laughs> peculiar tonight. Yes, I'm very Mine so. actually um, is is, uh, is supposed to look a little bit like a, a human heart. It's not mm -hmm. exactly that, but I think we're gonna we're gonna go there. Organ of murder, rather than like a heart heart. I thought I'd wear like a heart, you know. Um, so, <laughs> oh, let's see. Penny's hot cocoa mix for the rim. That's right, because we rimmed ours with cocoa. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's see, what else did we didn't make it to the store. <laughs> Red wine completely works in this in this situation. Plain red wine here. Jealous of the fab value, but thank you. This is this is me spelunking in uh, thrift stores um, for the better part of my life. Nice. Uh, so so that's always a lot of fun. We uh, we did end up having a name picked for this cocktail for us, and uh, we are going with um, Sharon Sharon Roney's Three Reds. So this is now our, our Three Reds. And it is there to celebrate Courtney's book, Organ of Murder, and also our on Valentine's Day. Several other people saying they're sticking with wine. <laughs> uh, Lexi says she's making the cocktail right now. So she's like, I'm on it. Give me a minute. Um, and it is a lot of fun. We, we do the cocktail. If, for those of you who might be new to the show, I don't know if we have any new folks. If you do, wave at us and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll lift your name to the spirits. Um, yes, Sharon, three reds, three reds. <laughs> uh, but uh, what we what we wanted to do is we wanted to always have a sort of cocktail uh, oriented theme, and we always try to do it around the book. But if, in this case, uh, this came so close to the. Um, oh, we do have a new person. Hello, Anya. Hello, everybody. Wave. Um, we um, we were coming so close to what is what is considered a holiday, Valentine's Day. But I've always I've always had a bit of an issue with Valentine's Day personally. And one of my friends called it "Wear Black and Eat Chocolate Day." And so, in addition to wearing black, 
Um, we are going to be picking winners for these wonderful chocolates. And I've, I, we've given these away before. And what's wonderful about them, this comes from Brooklyn. It's handcrafted. They are the best chocolates I think I've ever eaten. But they are also vegan and nut-free. So they are safe for everyone. So um, you can win these today. Uh, there will be picking some winners out of a hat in a little bit. Sharon, mm -hmm. who is our winner for the cocktail, will also get a squid squid pin. She will get a squid pin for that. So um, again, thank you, all of you who are new. Thank you, all of you who have come before. We are here to celebrate what you ought to celebrate around Valentine's Day, which of course is murder uh, yeah. and brains and phrenology and, and criminology. So, um, so, so line up your questions. Um, let's have at Courtney because there were so <laughs> many things to ask. Yes. Oh, that's good. Leanne says she she verifies that the caramels are completely awesome. Uh, I'm a little I'm a little sad. I don't have chocolate right now. Clearly, oh, I'm wait, doing yeah. something wrong. No. It's in the other room, though. It's, oh, it's okay. out there. So you have <laughs> after show chocolate. I think mm -hmm. is, is what we'll go for. So, <laughs> so I happen to know that several of you um, had many questions uh, mm -hmm. about the book. And Susan, I'm actually since it's not it's not up here yet. I know you guys are typing. Um, it takes a couple of minutes for them to get my way, but I did see Susan's question on Facebook, where she basically said, "Why are there so many skulls in these prisons?" And I, <laughs> in all capital letters, which I think is fantastic. So um, you know, maybe we maybe we should start with with this the curious nature of murder, skulls, phrenology, mm -hmm. and and prisons. How did all of this? How what are the intersections here? Why do we have oh strange connection so many so many reasons for the strange connection and the story doesn't even really begin with phrenology is the thing like mm -hmm. that long-term connection between prisons and capital punishment in particular and basically procuring bodies for medicine and science goes back way 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 back into history right so we have um you know going back to the the early modern period the 14th 15th 16th centuries um, it used to be that the first bodies that were really used for dissection in mm -hmm. medical schools, right, right, were the bodies of convicted criminals. In fact, uh, starting in Italy, it was literally the law that the only bodies you could use were those of convicted criminals. And that right. was the foundation of various forms of dissection practices. So by the time you get to the 19th century, when phrenology is sort of having this heyday, it had mm -hmm. already been really long established that First of all, the bodies that you have, the bodies that are the most right. accessible mm -hmm. are going to be those of criminals. Like the prison is just this sure. repository for, 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 for stuff, right? For humans <laughs> that you can use for experimentation. But there is also this really tight relationship between this idea that we cut open bad people for the public for fun because they are bad people, right? So sometimes it was even, especially in the United Kingdom, it was an explicit like part of the sentence that a body would be dissected for the public. They did this, for example, I talk a little bit about Burke and Hare, the body snatchers, the mm -hmm. ones who killed for to sell bodies to the dissection theater. And that's mm -hmm. in the book a little bit. And when, when Burke um, was hanged, they publicly dissected his, his body and his head. And then they handed the skull off to the phrenologists afterwards. So the yeah. phrenologists weren't doing anything too, too new. They were like basically coming along this path that had already been really well trod. The interesting part is they're not just leaving it in the dissection hall, right? They're taking the pieces with them back to their homes, to their yeah. phrenological cabinets. Kind of and 
you could also buy them. Like the, right. the Fowlers, who are two of our really big phrenologists in the middle of the 19th century, mm-hmm. you could buy a miniature cabinet from them. And most of the, the reproduction heads would have been those of criminals. So That's fascinating. You know, it's, it was a form of punishment. It was a form of fun. It was a part of medical education and it has these really, really deep roots. And phrenology was just taking advantage of a set of relationships that that were already very much in the public mind and were even seen as as just, as right. right. Like, of course, they're a bad guy. We're going to hang them. And then okay. afterwards, we're going to cut their head off and put it in on a, on a shelf. On a shelf. And, and there's a showmanship quality to it. And actually, um, so yeah. I'm starting to see some fun questions pop up. Mm-hmm. I see a couple from Leanne. Um, before, w- while we're waiting for a few more of those to pop into the chat, um, mm-hmm. we have, a you know, Finger Guns and Lady Paws, uh, they, they decided they would take a crack at phrenology themselves. So we're going to we're gonna watch them do that. And then we would come back and start going through these questions in order because there's tons and tons of questions for you, Courtney. But first, Finger Guns. Hello everyone, I'm Finger Guns. And I'm Lady Paws. We're here today to take a look at Lady Paws' head. Yes, because see, we're looking a little bit about phrenology and I want to see what's going on with the bumps on this man's head. Are you going to tell my future? Uh, well, no, it's, it's not about fortune telling. Though, in fact, because um, in the bumps on the head and the physiognomy. Basically, the way that you looked ended up being deeply influenced by race and gender and culture, and then ultimately affecting the criminal justice system. It could affect your future, but it didn't necessarily tell your fortune. So I'm just going to take a look. For instance, right here it says this is moral and religious sentiments. So, hmm. hmm. Let's see if you have some moral and religious sentiment. Well, will I be rich? Oh, that's that fortune telling again. Um, but but here, um, over here it says uh, there's some acquisitiveness over here. And I, I think that means you want to acquire stuff. Let's see. Do you have a little mm. bump or a ridge over there? I think it's just hair. It might just be hair. You do mm. have quite a lot of that. It's very lovely, though. Uh, so anyway, Courtney Thompson is going to be here to tell us about this very process and her book is called An Organ of Murder. Murder? Murder. Murder with pipes? Not that kind of organ. Hmm. Like on the organ trail? That, that's the organ trail. Oh. Yeah. Uh, organ, in this sense, means your brain. Hmm. What is my fortune? Uh, we covered this. Oh, that's right. I'm not going to get rich. Uh, they're doing their best, you know. I, I I was very impressed. I think you know that was a great a great starting point overview. Well done, to we finger guns. <laughs> Lady Paws is still working on it. I can see. Getting but, there, getting you know. There. Um, but about the bumps, Leanne has a really interesting yes. question. Our number one question here tonight is: um, Why did the diagnostic emphasis get put on convex features? Like, why not divots or dips? Well, you know, this is a great question, Leanne. In part because uh, even so. Oh boy. Oh man. See, I get very excited and then I can't make words. Um, I can't can't word good. Um, So the thing is the idea of phrenology being all about bumps or called bumpology was often Mm -hmm. a sort of a a thing that critics threw at it to sort of make it look less serious Mm -hmm. because what phrenology was at its heart, 
was cerebral localization. That was the idea. But we can't cut into a brain in the middle of the 19th century while the person is still alive. They did a lot of that after people were dead, of course. So the skull is used to sort of approximate the interior. And they did this in all sorts of ways. You have racial scientists trying to Mm -hmm. figure out what the size and shape of the brain means about racial characteristics. You have sexual scientists thinking about what it means about sex and gender. Um, And then what phrenologists were really trying to do is essentially to localize different parts of um, different qualities of mind or qualities of Mm -hmm. character or personality, right? So some things that we would think about having to do with intelligence, some things that we would think of as being more sensory, as well as things like moral sentiments. But the trick was it was never just about bumps. It was actually also about those depressions because the Mm -hmm. idea wasn't that you would find one specific bump. The idea was that you would pay attention to how they all sort of worked as a system. So it wasn't enough that you had big destructiveness, for example. You also had to have that planed out part of your brain. So it was sort of about um, the the brain as a system, as a dynamic Mm -hmm. system where it's about that balance. Do you have the right balance between the good bumps and the bad? Like maybe it's okay if you have an organ of murder, as long as you also have the organ of veneration, which means that you respect God and you're not going to act on it. Right. Mm, Um, So it was all about, it was about bumps and dips, but the phrenologists Mm -hmm. would say it was never really about bumps at all. It was about the Mm -hmm. overall shape and thinking about it all together in pop culture though. It does get really reduced down to things like an organ of murder. And I think for good reason, because people really want to be able to identify people with these kinds of characteristics to simplify it. Yeah. Well, don't we, I mean, ivermectin, like we're, it's still happening. (laughs) Oh yeah. Um, Yeah, definitely. (laughs) um, Anya asks, uh, how would you relate 19th century phrenology to 20th century eugenics? Mm. Oh, that's a great question. Well, I mean, first of all, we have eugenics is coming, um, is, is developing in the, in the 1880s, 1890s at the same time as phrenology is, is still hanging around, right? In mm-hmm. fact, there are still active phrenological societies until the 1930s, 1940s. Um, there are still people teaching and studying phrenology at the same time as eugenics is getting up and off the ground. So there actually was some overlap between these sciences existing and becoming popular. Um, and there are some real commonalities, especially, um, Phrenology have a lot to say about heredity, for example, about basically how certain characteristics run in families, which is something that eugenicists are very concerned with. And there's also a lot of interesting connective tissue, like somebody like Cesare Lombroso, who I talk a little bit in the book, he's the Italian criminologist. He wasn't a eugenicist per se. I mean, I think think his work is super (laughs) eugenics-y, but... His ideas of of atavism, degeneration of the born criminal were certainly incorporated into Mm -hmm. eugenics thinking. And so, too, and I mean, Lombroso was influenced by phrenology or they were overlapping. (laughs) I mean, the the real and the real moral of the whole story was in the 19th century, there was just this real obsession with various kinds of undesirable groups. And there's an attempt to take these groups that were previously seen as socially undesirable, whether we're talking about people with uh, intellectual disabilities or mentally ill folks or criminals or paupers or um, people with uh, various addictions, basically taking all of these groups that used to be social issues and still were, but turning them into medical issues. And that's where you really get the yeah, medical or scientific issues. And I think that's where you really see the connective tissue. I don't mm-hmm. think it's surprising that phrenology fades from the scene just as another 
science, however we want to define it, eugenics comes along and basically looks at the same set of problematic people and says, we can do something about this. Right. And Kathleen Richardson, she's like, of course, there's still people. And we're, you know, criminals are humans with parents and lives and, and children in many cases. Does she that's that's modern <laughs> thinking. But of course, we see we see that kind of um that attitude hasn't I'd love to say it's gone away, but I'm in the process of writing a book about the interwar period in Berlin, and I don't feel like I'm writing history. Sometimes I feel like I'm writing what happened last week. So um, yeah, it can be I mean, I'm, I love that Anya brought up the eugenics example because I I I think comparing phrenology and eugenics together is so useful. In part because phrenology uh, phrenology is a lot easier to make funny right? Like it's yeah. more of a joke. People don't think eugenics is a joke, right? Yeah. Um, and, Actually, but they asked a question about that, uh, about Ooh. its use in minstrel shows about, um, Oh yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me come back to that a second, but I want to address the joke part. Cause I think there are actually two parts, two different questions really. Mm -hmm. So it's really easy to make something like phrenology funny in a way that it's not easy to make eugenics funny. And yet, <laughs> right. Um, and yet both of them sort of get tarred with this, this term pseudoscience, which I don't like using. I don't use it in my book. I have, I can go on at length about why I don't use it. But the thing is when these sciences and I'm using science for a reason, when these sciences premiered, so to speak, they were taken super seriously and they were promoted yeah. by people at the top of the, the scientific ladder, um, by, by clergymen, by physicians, by doctors, by professors of places like Harvard and Yale. Like these were not marginal practices or science, either phrenology or eugenics. And both of them still have these echoes into the present day. With mm -hmm. eugenics, it's really sort of honestly, sadly, very easy to look around and say, this discourse or this idea or how we treat this group of people that's eugenics. Do not resuscitate. The, literally, I mean, situation the, autistic and and people with Down syndrome, if they absolutely. do not resuscitate on their... A yeah. lot of the discourse about disability during the COVID age has certainly mm -hmm. um, been heavily eugenic in tone. And the point that I want to make and why I like to make this comparison to eugenics is I don't think phrenology is a laughing matter either, right? And I think that we're also still using a lot of these ideas in the present in similarly problematic ways that we, we just don't interrogate. And um, as for the other side of the question of Leanne's question about the um, about minstrelsy, uh, that's a great question. And I will say that uh, other scholars far, far smarter than I have written a lot more about it. So I'd really recommend that you look up the work of Britt Russert in particular, and uh, Michael Sapple's written a bit about it. But yeah, um, phrenology became a a regular feature in minstrel shows in the last decades of the 19th century, which was used on the one hand to make fun of phrenology, mm -hmm. but it was also used as a way to basically make fun of the pretensions or the, the, the assumed pretensions of um, emancipated black Americans to become scientists and to pursue higher education. So it had this, it was this real double-edged sword of they were mocking the science, but they were also using it to mock um, the potential for, for people of African descent to be scientists in their own right. So right. there's a lot there. There's a lot, <laughs> a lot going on. Actually, um, Britton had, uh, had asked, what inspired your research on the subject? And I feel like we're getting close to it. So I thought maybe we should, maybe we should ask that question next. I'm asking the questions a little bit out of order as I, as we talk. That's totally fine. I mean, so this book started as a dissertation, which I mean, so many of our books do. And I have to be really honest. I never wanted to write about phrenology. I thought, I mean, hasn't it been written? Like, what new is there to say about it? Originally, I really wanted to write something about 
asylums and mental illness in the 19th century. I went to Paris for a summer. It was a great summer, but I didn't find anything in the archives. And um, what I realized is I was really interested in minds and brains in the 19th century. And once you start scratching the surface of anything having to do with minds and brains, phrenology is right there. It's right under the surface of all of the discourse in the 19th century. If you're talking about skulls, brains, minds, it's all there. But I still felt like there wasn't anything new or exciting. And so the more that I read, the more I realized, oh my gosh, like every single one of them, like they're all just, they're obsessed with murderers. They're writing about criminals all the time. It's just murder this, murder that, criminal this, criminal that. And as a, a, a mentor of mine, when I was a grad student asked me once, well, what are the stakes? And thinking about what the stakes mm -hmm. were and why the murderer, why the criminal, what does this mean for for American society? What does this mean for science or medicine? What does this mean for for us now? Oh yeah, AI algorithm. I have I can go on at length about about the new phrenology, which uh, AI face recognition and we keep we keep reinventing phrenology with AI facial recognition, and it makes me so tired. <laughs> like, I'm just, I really want to stop thinking about phrenology, guys. Like, don't keep. Doing it again and again. Everybody then like tags me on Twitter, and then I have to have an opinion about it, and I'm just so tired. Well, I think I, you know I wrote a book about death and dying, and I I hate well, to tell you how important how how in, interesting that makes you to people during the middle of a pandemic. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Um, I I missed a couple of uh, these are not questions but comments. Um, no, actually, my Fowler bust isn't a bank, but I have seen some that are banks. I have the bank one. I got it as a gift a few years ago. Yeah, that's great. Um, Leanne asked uh, if Finger Paws has a brain. He, I believe so. I think it's under there, under all, under that lovely luscious hair of his. Um, uh, Leanne had asked about Major Mitchell because it's it's such a sad story, and I wondered if you could if you could elaborate about that. Yeah. So the Major Mitchell story is um, it's not one I discovered. Other people have written about it, but I think it it really does encapsulate a lot of the stakes right in this story. So the case of Major Mitchell, um, Major Mitchell was a nine-year-old boy who in 1834 in Maine was accused um, and put on trial for the maiming of another little boy, a seven-year-old by the name of David Crawford. And allegedly, or I guess he was convicted. So a spoiler alert, I guess, sorry. Um, he, uh, he attacked the other child and actually cut out one of his testicles with a piece of tin. And for this, he was put on trial um, for maiming. And at the time, living in the same town in Maine was a man by the name of John Neal, who was a lawyer. Um, if you know anything about early American literature, he was also a really well-published um, well uh, fiction writer of the time. And he was obsessed with phrenology. And he decided he would take this case on, not because he was impressed with Major Mitchell. In fact, he called the boy the little monster and, and really basically thought he should go to jail, yeah. but because he thought it would be this great test case for phrenology. Mm -hmm. So the case goes to trial and Mitchell brings to the stand, not Mitchell, sorry, Neil brings to the stand three different physicians and he has them testify using phrenological terms and referring to phrenologists, especially because, so he claimed, um, Mitchell had received an injury as a child to the side of his head right in the same area as the organ of murder, the organ of destructiveness, which if everybody wants to test their bump right now, it's right here over your ears. That is our organ of destructiveness. Although remember, you have to keep that in mind with everything else going on. Um, so he brings this court, this case to trial in 1834. And it is the first ever case where phrenology is brought into a court of law, or at least the first case 
I have been able to identify. Maybe somebody else will find one one day. Um, and this causes like a big stir in the um, with, within the courtroom. There's an argument between him and the other lawyer. There's an argument with the judge. Eventually, the judge does throw out the phrenological and basically is like, knock it off, no more phrenology. Um, the nine-year-old child is found to be guilty and is sent for nine years of hard labor. Jeez. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was it was the 1830s in Maine, I guess. I guess I that's how they do. No, I put up Anya's comment here about yeah. There's certainly contemporary echoes, right, with the racialized jury outcomes and, uh, yeah, wow. Oh, yes, yeah, and we can talk about that, too. Um, but Layers, layers, layers. Yeah, no, and then, so the thing about the Mitchell case, though, that's so interesting is, first of all, Neil thought it was great. Like, Neil was so, he was like, yeah, good job, me. I did great because he didn't care about Mitchell. He just wanted a test case that he could use to basically say, we need to use phrenology as medical jurisprudence. And at that time in American history, both medicine and the law were in kind of uncertain standing because there's this anti-elitist attitude among Jacksonian America. It was very pro-populism, right? So both medicine and law were like, like both of these fields in the 1830s were like, phrenology is this new hot thing. Maybe we can borrow some of that shine to bring a little bit of, you know, clout to what we're doing. And so over the next two decades, there's a whole bunch of cases where phrenologists are brought onto the stand, lawyers use it, judges use it, um, lawyers are writing in journals, in legal journals, physicians are writing in medical journals, and they're all like, man, the potential for this to be used, especially in cases of potential criminal insanity. Mm. To the extent that one of the key sort of theorists of criminal insanity, this guy, Isaac Ray, who is the guy who advised Neil in how to bring a phrenological defense okay. in the Mitchell case, writes this book and he's like, okay, we're going to use phrenology, but we're not going to say it's phrenology, but we're using phrenology. And that case, that material ends up getting uh, cited in the Monoton case, which some of you might be familiar with. It's a British case that basically established the principle of the criminal insanity defense mm -hmm. um, in Britain, which then gets carried over to the United States. So in a lot of ways, the way that we think about criminal insanity today owes it all to, to poor Major Mitchell um, and to phrenology. And yet, you know, it was popular. Judy Jackson was, or <clears throat> sorry, was mentioning that Lincoln and Walt Whitman both had readings, mm -hmm. and that you know, it, um, she was asking about used in court, which we've just covered. But um, Susan Ballinger said Mark Mark Twain had a reading yeah. as well. Um, and he, of course, didn't take his very seriously, but all the same, he still went and had it done, right? So well, and he he went back and he wrote fiction yeah. stories about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Whitman took it fairly seriously. There's, um, I think, uh, Lucretia Mott had her head read. There's, there's a actually, if you like look at a lot of 19th century thinkers, a lot of them have phrenological charts yeah. in their in their collections, which is fascinating. Um, but you have to keep in mind if you're a paying client. You're not going to want to hear you have a bad organ. No, right? Of not, you know right? it doesn't make it's money, and this was yeah, this was big money <laughs> too. She's convinced that you now need to write it up so you can come back. I um, mean, I, I'm always happy to come back. I can I, everything else I work on is real is even more depressing. Like I'm writing something on pregnant children right now, and if you want to talk depressing, like I don't think it gets worse than that, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, happy to always come back. The interwar period and things being burned down by Nazis. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, history is depressing. <laughs> Sometimes. Well, actually, the most alarming thing about my book that I'm researching right now is I'm like, oh, I wish this was history. But like, let's yeah. see, anti-trans sentiment, uh, the rise of fascism. I don't know. But um, yeah, so uh, Judy was also asking, does that organ correspond to the frontal lobes, which indeed, when damaged, ha has led to weird behavior? Like, did they get any of it right? 
I mean, that's, that's the question, right? I mean, I think, um, man, there's a few different ways I can answer this. Um, so first of all, when cerebral localization does come around in the 1860s, a lot of phrenologists are like, we were saying that, like we said that first and they get really, on the one hand, they're like every neurologist, they're like, these are now phrenologists. We have decided we own them. They are ours. Um, and they're, they're really uh, jealous about, about the attention that the new neurology gets when they're like, we've been saying this for decades, right? So there's a real sort of animus there, a real anxiety about priority. Um, I think there's also, you know, when you're, when you're talking about the frontal lobe, the case that everybody always thinks about, of course, is the case of Phineas Gage, right. um, which, you know, the, this is the railway worker who gets yeah. the spike through his head and, and it's early evidence for the relationship of the frontal lobe with aggression. And the thing is, it's a great case. It is absolutely useful for thinking about the localization of different kinds of behavior in the head based on brain injury. But the major Mitchell case, which basically made the same case, was about 15 years before that. And right. there was another major case, the case of John Haggerty that I talk about in the book, that's also very similar and also predates Gage. So I don't want to say the phrenologists were right, because I, I think their rightness is uh, problematic, to say the least. But I do think there's some interesting things. I think they were they 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 were on certain tracks that ended up being useful, yeah. and that did end up like the idea of cerebral localization is one that we still take very seriously right. as a hallmark of neurology. They just were in a very different sort of direction about it. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting to me, and I talk about this in the conclusion a bit, is that it's sort of a chicken or an egg thing, right? Did so today, if you look at, there's a whole bunch of research using things like facial width to height ratio. Somebody mentioned AI imaging, we're, things like this. BMI, right? Right. Oh, yeah. Where we associate certain kinds of qualities, mm -hmm. good and bad, with people's face and head shapes. And this is heavily racialized and gendered, as you can imagine. But there's a whole set of studies that I've been able to find. And they happen every six months. There's another one. So people are always tagging me in them. But about basically people with wide faces are dangerous and bad and aggressive and people with narrow faces are well-behaved and good. And that's, that's the same conclusion that our 19th century, I'm going to find the picture now and, and hold it up, but that's the same conclusion that they reached, you know, that the phrenologists reached. So the open question really is, isn't whether or not they were right, but if they essentially created a reality in which mm -hmm. this is how we think about what good and bad people look like. And for those of you with kids in particular, if you ever watch cartoons, what does a bad guy look like? What does a good guy look like? Right? And some of this is physiognomy, but phrenology I, is also just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what I look like. I long and skinny. I've got really long fingers. <laughs> no, but you have a narrow head, so you can't you you can't be that bad, right? <laughs> So I do wonder, I do wonder sometimes, when, when I was a grad student, I went much harder in this direction of phrenology created these assumptions. <laughs> and now I'm like, I think it's more complicated than that. But there is something really fascinating about how certain ideas about what looks like a dangerous person right. have persisted in our culture in ways that are silly, like cartoons, Mm -hmm. And in ways that are very serious, like racial profiling and, right. and you know, that have real consequences for real people. So, yeah, Leanne is saying, didn't wide face cartoon characters represent evil? And that's that's mm -hmm. basically what phrenologists would have said, too. And yeah. physiognomists and facial width to height ratio people working in the last 10 years. So mm -hmm. I it's, don't know. It's, it's 
it's fascinating stuff. Um, we have room for lots more questions, mm-hmm. but we're going to take a brief intermission to have one of our live music, one of our one of our musical uh, numbers. So we are about to queue up Charming Disaster. If you don't know who Charming Disaster is, they are a goth po- goth punk folk duo of the macabre and of science, and they read tarot during their shows. So uh, they're they're going to do a song for us, but. They are also doing a peculiar book club concert, and that is February 17th. And that is uh, sort of our follow-up to an un-Valentine's Day event. Um, It is free to those of you who have subscriptions, and to those of you who don't, it is not free, but we're running a sale right now where if you use promo code FEBU, so like February kind of, um, but without the R, you can get the tickets for uh, for twenty percent off. So join us. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, we are also uh, going to be picking a winner for the squid. Remember, Julius sees her, who is our mascot. We have a squid plushie that we're giving away. So if you guys would like to join us, there are tickets available on our website. Please do. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so now, without further ado, charming disaster. Oh, hello. We're charming disaster. And we're so glad to be here with you on the Peculiar Book Club. Grotesque and powerful 
have not seen them in concert. I have to tell you, it is it is something. I've seen them live. Um, they do, in fact, uh, do a tarot reading through the course of the show. It's fantastic. Um, <clears throat> I've taken off my hat. You know what that means. That means I have to pick names of winners uh, who are inside my hat. So um, we have another pin. So one person gets a um, one of our lovely squid pins, which I meant to bring up here to show you, but instead I'm just going to go like this. And you can imagine. Um, but we have these lovely squid pins and Sharon Roney, she won one for the name of the cocktail, but we also have Alexis. Alexis, you also win a pin. You will also get to sport our lovely squid on whatever article of clothing you wish. Um, and we have our first of the chocolate giveaways. I've got three chocolates, three of these lovely little packs to give away. Mm, yes. And our very first winner tonight <clears throat> is Kathleen Richardson. Kathleen Richardson, you are going to get some chocolate. So uh, we will we'll we'll pick a few more winners in a little bit, but I gotta I gotta put my hat back on because otherwise, how will the show go on, right? Yes, hooray, yay. I see Lexi's like, yes. Um, <laughs> the last time somebody won a pin, they made such a loud noise, they frightened their dog, as I recall. It happens. So um, I feel like well, I may have, uh, uh, oh, and Kathleen's excited too. Woo! <laughs> um, I feel like I missed a question earlier on, which um, I'm trying to come, oh, we're talking about Nazi Germany, yes, um, about head and face shape. And about you know spreading racial, actually using that to spread racial uh, this tension of various sorts, and uh, of course ultimately put that to nefarious use. Yeah, no, I mean, so I don't, I don't talk about the Nazis in my in my book, but um, it's it's definitely true that ideas about atavism, um, ideas uh, especially physiognomic concepts about facial shapes and characteristics were instrumental to the Nazis race making mm -hmm. project. And that's something that a lot of scholars have written about. Mm -hmm. And and you can you can go you can go read read what they have to say because they, they have much smarter mm -hmm. things to say than I do. But um, like a lot of the anti-Semitic ideas that are that were integral to the Nazis race making project were developed in the 19th century, or in some cases earlier. I mean, physiognomy mm -hmm. as a practice, and physiognomy, for those of you who might not be familiar, is the um, practice of reading facial structures. So not the skull, perhaps, but the nose, the eyes, uh, maybe ears, but certainly noses, which mm -hmm. um, very anti-Semitic. I, I have a very crooked, very long, large, I mean, I mean I'd be in trouble. Yeah, I mean, so I have, a, I have a Coraline crooked nose going on. <laughs> you know, I always want to try to. I'm always so tempted to try to read myself, but you know, I don't. Sh should I like? Should I take it seriously? But like, physiognomy is something that dates all the way back to the ancient world. I mean, Aristotle mm -hmm. wrote physiognomic texts, right. um, but physiognomy basically becomes seen as something kind of like fortune telling by the time we get to the. 18th century or so, and then it's reinvigorated by this um, Swiss man, uh, Swiss minister, actually, the name of Johann Lavater. And then what happens in the 19th century is physiognomy is still sort of floating around. Um, mm -hmm. There's some great books uh, on this, uh, including one by my, my very good friend, Sharona Pearl, has written a really great book about physiognomy. And then phrenology is around too. So you've got the face, then you've got the skull. So 
by the end of the century and by the beginning of the 20th century, you've got a mashup of these two, two ideas that basically give you a way to map out exactly what certain kinds of people look like, really mm-hmm. look like. Um, and I've actually written a little bit about, about, uh, about how this came to shape things like police identification systems in the 20th yeah. century. Um, that's, that's a fun little essay, a total side project, but, um, if anyone's curious about that one, I think it is actually open access on Endeavor. So you can always go read about how physiognomy made modern day police surveillance. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, it honestly doesn't surprise me. I, I think about the fact that, um, uh, like I, I have a disability technically, but, um, people tell me things like, well, you don't look disabled. What does that mean? Like, what does disability look like exactly to you? What is what does autism look like, or what is what you know? What are, what are the things? What does it look like? And mm-hmm. but it's because that's what we do. We, we've attached mm-hmm. a lot of visual signifiers to uh, all sorts of things. And yeah. um, you know, what does a criminal look like? What is it? What does a murderer look like? <laughs> yes, and I mean, I think the thing is, it's a very there's a reason why physiognomy or phrenology or eugenics, right, are hit in the way that they do and persist in the way that they do. And I think it actually comes down to a very human and honestly a very sympathetic starting point, which is that quite simply, we are we are very scared creatures, right? Like <laughs> human beings, you know, like like we don't know who we can trust in the mm-hmm. world, right? And so right. you see, I think, especially this anxiety about strangers in the 19th century, whether it's the dangerous classes or the city of strangers, as as the city, as Europe and America are industrializing and urbanizing. And rather than, you know, you maybe you used to live in a town of 100 people and you knew everybody and exactly what they looked like. Now you're surrounded by hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. And they don't all look like you and you can't identify them and you don't know who you can trust or not. And Physiognomy and phrenology, as well as eugenics and some other kinds of practices, mm-hmm. I think all speak to that central human set of anxieties and fears, which really comes down to, on the one hand, using these kinds of practices to know yourself, right? <clears throat> Who am I? Right, right. That's why we like fortune telling and astrology and MBTI and those uh, Dungeons and Dragons, like neutral <laughs> good charts. And um, what what's, what's you in? Right. What, what Hogwarts house you're, I have opinions about that too, obviously, but like, like we want to sort ourselves. We want to know who we are, but it's, that's only half the story, right? The sort of uses of these projects for self-help or self-knowledge. On the other hand, we really want to know who other people are. And I think that comes from a deep place of fear that I find to be, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I'm, I certainly am not an apologist for any of these sciences. I once got asked at a conference like, oh, so you believe in phrenology? And I was like, no, but it <laughs> was, but I do, but it was a science. So I don't, it's not that I believe in phrenology. It's that I think we need to take it seriously. Right. But all of that, all of that mm-hmm. is to say that I, I am sympathetic to the anxieties that underlie these projects. Mm-hmm. Well, even I, if sometimes they're coming from terrible, terrible places, right? Well, like know? so, uh, we have Anthro Girl here was saying we want everything to be readily identifiable, mm-hmm. and that Jim Clements talks about how we should get rid of the term predator because it implies that we'll be able to recognize that, like tiger, yeah. you know, like that's a tiger, but you can't do that with other yeah. with people. You can't do that with humans. Um, Anya asked, and I think that you were sort of getting mm-hmm. there anyway, so maybe we could we could sort of flesh mm-hmm. this out. Um, do tell us, you, you said you have reasons for using science instead of pseudoscience. Mm-hmm. What, what are those reasons and why is that important? 
Oh, this is, I can go, I can go on for like an hour about this. Um, there's actually, I've written at least one screed that's available for free online. If anybody wants to read my deep feelings and emotions about this, but it really comes down to this. I think pseudoscience is ultimately a term that we use to dismiss practices, um, that occurred in the past that we do not take seriously anymore. And as a starting point, okay, Sure. That seems fine, right? Mm -hmm. Why not? Sure, right. The problem with that is pseudoscience seems to suggest two things. First of all, the pseudo part, which I'll come back to. But there's also this um, very dismissive and very presentist piece of it, right? So when we call something in the past a pseudoscience, we're saying we know better now and we're better now. And as a historian of science and medicine, I'm really against that kind of presentist Mm -hmm. assumption that we are always better now and we know more now because that's not a generous way to think about people in the past to begin with. But also it's very limiting because it, it sure. forces you to go in with a very judgmental and presentist mm-hmm. and superior point of view when you're trying to evaluate something. And the other piece of this is the pseudo part in that I would say it wasn't pseudo. It was create, you know, phrenology was, um, a scientific set of theories and practices that were crafted originally by credentialed scientists with degrees based on anatomical and physiological research and was initially promoted primarily by other physicians and scientists. So too was eugenics. So -hmm. to call those practices pseudo, you would have to say that then the medicine of that time was pseudo and the physiology of the time was pseudo and the statistics of that, in Galton's case, right? Statistics was pseudo. And -hmm. we're not willing to say any of those things were pseudo. I think we have to take really, really seriously the the, um, circumstances in which these practices developed and, and this is why we can't be too, um, you know, snooty about the present day, the way that they're still shaping our daily lives. Yeah, I think so, that's the, yeah, that seems like yeah. the, big, the big one right there um, yeah. is that if you say it's pseudoscience, it's a little bit easy to go. I don't, yeah. I don't have it's, to look. It's a, it's way back there and I don't have to so think about it. It's so easy to dismiss. And the thing is, yeah. so like last year, the example like racism- like you, <laughs> No, no. And the instant you think it's done and over, it makes it so much easier for it to perpetuate. And that's, that's what worries me, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so when we do the example I always use with, with students in class, when we're talking about eugenics, as I say to them, have you ever heard someone in your family, maybe your mom, maybe a relative, you know, somebody gets pregnant and somebody, you know, says something along the lines of somebody like that shouldn't be having kids or can they really afford another child? Right. Or you shouldn't have kids you can't afford. Those are very eugenic arguments and statements. And pretty much every student I have has heard somebody say basically that, or they themselves have thought or said that. And that's how deeply ingrained these ideas are. And I think that a lot of phrenological concepts are also pretty deeply ingrained, but they're they're in a subtle way where it's the language that we use and the images that we mm-hmm. circulate in culture that tell us something about which people are people and which people are. Um, mm-hmm. There was a, a great question somebody asked. I think it was the question about a predator. Uh, to go back to Anthro Girl's point, if you can recognize the predator, if you call somebody a predator, then that makes them something other. Right. And that means you're putting them in a box and you can dismiss them. And I actually think that calling it pseudoscience does the same thing. It says, oh, we're not like that. We're better than that. And we'll never do that again. We're doing that right now. Right. right. With eugenics. Absolutely. And I would say with phrenology as well. Um, and what's really ironic, I think, is that some of these sciences were actually 
a lot more, you know, to go back again to that predator question, which I just love that comment. Um, you know, a lot of phrenologists were actually really utopian in the 19th century. They thought, sure. yes, we can identify criminal minds, but that was with the goal of rehabilitating them. Yeah. So the idea See, there was, was a, a big training manual that used to come with it. The, the Fowler bus was hilarious because they, <laughs> they traveled America and they had this giant book, which I've seen. I mean, it's like a mm -hmm. doorstop. And it was like, mm -hmm. how to fix what you find out that you don't have. Yeah. So, I mean, they really thought it was a sort of self-help. I mean, something very hopeful about it. And I do think that gets lost. And that wasn't the case with physiognomy. So I think no, technology no. has a much uh, greater sense of... And I, I actually think this is one <clears> of the <throat> things that distinguishes it from like Lombroso's theory of the born criminal or eugenics for that matter. Both eugenics mm -hmm. and Lombroso's theories were very much this idea, this pessimistic vision of, of human nature, that identity categories were fixed, that there was such a thing as a born criminal. Whereas right. phrenologists 50 years earlier would have said, okay, you can your organs mm -hmm. are, are a little out of whack, but we can teach you how to cultivate the ones that need cultivating and how right. to resist the other urges. And For so a mean, price. <laughs> I mean, very, very like, very like, you know, very like self-healthy, right? Yeah. But yeah. The, really thing, well. the thing that's so interesting is a lot of the ideas that still have persisted into the present with all these, these sciences of the 19th century are these notions of people mm -hmm. as immutable types. That is very concerning. If that's the thing we've kept, that's not the spirit of phrenology. No, no, and no, no. That's, not that's you know, one. again, I'm not, I, I'm not pro phrenology. I'm well, not. We, I just want to. We do have one pro phrenologist here today, though. We have oh. a, we have a, we have an animal phrenologist. Oh boy, a pet phrenologist. That, Davy, would you like to introduce our pet phrenologist? Of course, yes. Uh, and I just want to say I'm wearing my black Met t-shirt to get in the spirit of Unvalentine's Day. Unvalentine's Day. That's right. Meh. Um, yes, this is uh, Germany's leading canine phrenologist. So Ooh. he he sent in a special video to tell us all about the specialized field of canine phrenology. Yes, very important. <laughs> Hello, Peculiars. I am Werner von Germany, Germany's leading Canine phrenologist. This puppy right here, I can show you all the regions of his brain that let you know what this doggy is all about. This region right here behind the ear, this region loves affection, loves belly scratches, tummy rubs, scratches behind the ear. This doggy cannot get enough of them. Look at how happy it makes the dog. Now this region right here, this region that measures shows that the doggy is not that great about listening when he's outside. He gets very distracted by smells and sounds. Now, if the doggy will come back up, you can see right here down the middle of the brain is the Mouth-eye coordination of the dog. This doggy is very good. Oh, see how affectionate the doggy is? This doggy is very good at catching things. Catching things in his mouth. He'll catch anything in his mouth. Catch. Oh, good boy. Good boy. This is a very important region of the dog brain. This is the... Oh, oh, heads up. This is the harmonic region. Right down here under the ear is the harmonic region of the brain. This lets the doggy actually sing songs with me. The doggy will sing along with me. We are the champions.
champions. We are the champions. No time for losers. Cause we are the champions. Oh, now there is something you have to worry about. Right here, right here at the back. Look at the size of the destructiveness this doggy can chew. Which legs off it if we let them. So there you go, peculiars. There is your lesson in canine frenology. So, yeah. Um, I love that. <laughs> I, have to thank, I have to thank my best friend in the world, my dog Kenobi, for, uh, for pitching in for the video. And yeah, singing. It's unbelievable. You should hear him. He loves Sarah Bareilles, loves some Elton John, some Queen. Anybody who can really belt. He really likes Ooh. belting out those high notes. That is hilarious. Um, oh yeah. my God. And he's part but Vishla. So that's that's where the howling comes from. So something tells me I'll come up with other reasons to have Kenobi in videos. Although as you can see, he's he's not too good at staying on his mark. He's no. no. If I had known dogs were invited, I would have grabbed mine and forced her to participate, <laughs> which she would have hated for the record. But, you know, the we things we do. Pet friendly. We're very pet friendly here. Um, everyone's very excited about your dog, Davey. <laughs> oh, yes. He's the best. He's the absolute best. And I stuck a, I snuck a Star Wars name. I didn't sneak a Star Wars name past my wife. She, she was all in for it. Um, so, yeah, he's got his own TV show coming out soon. I mean, it's wow. perfect. Um, all right. So, Brandy, do you think we should continue with the un-Valentine's Day theme? I, I think we should. I think we should. I'm going to pick a new winner, and then I think it's time to go right into that quiz. Let's do it. All right. Uh, let's see here. All right. For yet another very fine chocolates. Some of you have had these and I, I like ate my weight in these. I, I bought extra because, you know, I had to test them. I had to test them. They're so good. Okay. Next winner is <clears throat> Carol Cook. Carol Cook, are you with us today? You are also a winner of some chocolates. All right, Davey. All right. Well, first I have oh, to, yeah. I have to let Leanna in here because she, she reposted her question. Uh, you wrote the phase para. I'm gonna let you say it. You know, what? I'm, oh, God. Let, I'm, I'm tapping out. Can you say it? Five, can you say it once fast? I, I'm not gonna lie. There is a, a part of me that deeply likes alliteration, which some of you can probably tell from the book. Um, oh boy, I I did this to myself, so I can't. It's 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 that meme you played yourself. You did. Um, that's me right now. Um, Peripatetic and prolific popularizes of phrenology. 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 Peripatetic and prolific popularizers of phrenology. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Thank you. All right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Things, things are just going to get more challenging from here. So, <laughs> God. I stick with the un-Valentine's Day theme. I thought it would be appropriate to do a quiz about other things that happened on February 14th. St. Valentine's, yes, he wrote his letter on February 14th and signed it from your Valentine, but other things have happened on this day. So let's take a look and we're going to quiz you about some of these things. So we would not be able to have the Peculiar Book Club without this popular website being registered on February 14th of 2005 was it a twitter b facebook or c youtube 
And the peculiars will help you out in the chat, although they are slightly behind. Is this behind for us. me? Oh, it's this for is me. for you. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Um, I have I have a suspicion. So, and yeah. this. Wait, what should I should I just guess or should I? You can. I mean, Let's see. I'm waiting for the peculiars. Usually we get A's, B's, C's. They. they I mean, I think they don't want to help me. Is what oh, there we is go. what's going on? Okay. All right. I'm seeing. <laughs> Okay, you guys are are not where I thought I thought we were gonna go here. So, because I know, okay. So this is this is me dating myself in a very particular way. But when I was a senior in high school, that is when Facebook came out and became a thing, and that was two thousand five. So I'm gonna go with B for Facebook. The answer is C, oh, YouTube. Of gosh. course, we cannot okay. have the Peculiar Book Club. If I had a logic YouTube. there, though. I want credit for having I'll some logic. To I that. was a freshman at The Ohio State University oh, when we well, got the okay. Facebook. When oh, yes, it Facebook. was the Facebook originally. I do and it was remember that. a big deal. I mean, my friends at other universities who didn't have it, oh, it was a big deal. All right. I actually... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So more questions. All right. I'm, I'm going to hoard up that by myself and then I'm ready. Older than you guys and I don't like it. <laughs> Question number two. This organization um, was founded on February 14th of 1920. We're skipping back in time here and is a nonpartisan organization working to protect and expand voting rights and defend democracy. That is their, that is their motto on their website currently today. Okay. Okay. But they were founded. They were founded on February fourteenth of nineteen twenty. Uh, was it A the League of Women Voters, B the American Civil Liberties Union, or C Fair Fight Action? Okay, uh, I'm gonna. Ooh, I know um, it's challenging. I it can't be A. I or I don't think it can be A because I'm pretty sure the League. No, maybe it is A actually because that would make more sense if they were founded. After seeing a, we're seeing a lot of B's and A's, I am here. seeing a lot of B's, and I feel like B B is. I feel like B is the right answer. The ACLU. All right. The answer is it's the League of Women Voters. Oh, you guys, I'm going to lose my history PhD <laughs> at this rate. Like this is just embarrassing. This is bad. And you guys have this time. It was your fault. This this one is yeah, on you. The peculiar did lead you astray on you, that one. You did bad. Bad job, all of you. Bad. All right. <laughs> Famed inventor Alexander Graham Bell, and this is your last question, officially okay. applied for the patent for this invention on February 14th, 1876. We're moving even further back. Was it uh. A, the metal detector, B, the photophone, or C, the classic telephone? Oh, I don't like this one because <laughs> I want to say telephone, but it's probably not going to be telephone, right? Because <laughs> I want to say telephone. Peculiars, do you know your on, February 14th history? Peculiars, help me out here. Stephanie's in on C. Somebody look it up on Wikipedia. I won't <laughs> judge. I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah, you do suck, Anya. No, I mean, you specifically. No, you don't. You don't. I like Anya. I like Minerva, you, Anya. Minerva thinks maybe the... <laughs> okay. I'll tell you that the photophone allows you to hear through by sending light. You can hear okay. voices through sending light. That's All what right. the photophone is. I, do you... I don't know. Okay, now, now we're getting some A's. I feel like A would be the funniest one if it was the metal detector, you know? Like that would be that would be kind of fun. <laughs> but I, I'm seeing A's, I'm, I'm seeing C's. I have reasons to think it's A, but I could be wrong here. You know, I'm gonna go with A because I like it. It's All it right. amuses me. We're going with A. Final answer A. Correct answer is the telephone. No, okay, okay. Here. I, 
I'm I, I I'm turning in my PhD. That's sometimes, it. Like sometimes. They're, they're what did doctors done. say? What did doctors say? Painful. Sometimes the most obvious answer is the answer. Yeah. You know what? Yeah. I'm glad. You know, I wasn't sure if that was going to be an easy or a hard quiz. I wasn't sure. But... I didn't like that. I did not enjoy that. I, I, I almost fell for the, you know, because of the whole thing with Garfield and the trying to find the bullet thing. I totally yeah. went. Yeah. So now so, you know, on February 14th, you, do, you don't have to celebrate love. You could celebrate the telephone. You could phone a friend. You could celebrate <laughs> the League of Women Voters and there get involved go. in something. I mean, you could watch a YouTube video <laughs> about the League of, Human, uh, of, of Women Voters on your phone hey. I mean, yeah. and just celebrate everything. Yeah. <laughs> there was, there was also- one more. The, the actual like the featured event on the website I went to for all these was that was the day that the Ayatollah of Iran put out the fatwa on Salman Rushdie. That's Which too depressing. It was I'm a little sorry. heavy. It was a little bit heavy. I get that we're doing the, on yeah. Valentine's Day, but there's a line. You but know? they consider there's, that the like featured event. Line. Yeah. Oh, I'm just, I'm just shameful. Like this is, that this was is embarrassing. Was. Take my degree away. It's over. <laughs> you know what's great? They can't. I found no, that. No, they're out. gonna they're gonna watch this and take and, and like refuse to give me tenure. My my president's gonna be like, she couldn't get these three questions. Well, right. you know what? I left academia. One the yeah. one bre- I actually had somebody say, uh, I run a I run the, an academic journal, but I'm not in academia. And someone said, I'm gonna talk to your chair. And I was like, the one I'm sitting on, it's the only <laughs> one I got. <laughs> nice. Uh. Nice. I'm sorry, Amanda. I see Amanda's comment. Yeah, it was. A, I turned out to be a hard quiz. I guess. Yeah, Davy. <laughs> oh uh, man, that was that was. The good news fun. is that's the fun of trivia, right? It keeps you on your toes, even when you hey, feel that, like an is expert. That the fun it, of it, trivia? It I mean, no, more, no. I like need to give away more chocolate just to make that like okay. So all right. I think I need chocolate. Like, where is my emergency chocolate? Now? I talk about. I know. I really should start sending chocolate to the guests, right? I mean, I I have like. Five bags of Valentine's chocolate in the other room. I'm fine. I'm I'm stocked. Don't worry. We're good. <laughs> so, <clears throat> last last person out of my hat here. Uh, so we so today, Sharon Roney won a pin for the drinks. Alexis also or Lexi, sorry, Lexi also won a pin. Kathleen Richardson got some chocolate. Carol Cook got some chocolate, and Catherine Prendergast. Prendergast. <laughs> Catherine, sorry. Now you're gonna have to say that five times fast. I know. You know what? For the number of times my last name has been pronounced shoelace. Um, so thank you all. You all get chocolate. I will be shipping those out tomorrow and um, you'll get them soon. So, all right. Hurrah. I also bought one of these for, you know, I because I had to test it. So these are really good ones. I just, just want you to know. <laughs> I also right. bought another. You know, sometimes I feel like I need to test them more than once. I may have mm-hmm. bought mm-hmm. a Very several important. testing yeah. samples. <laughs> <laughs> Some people wait till the samples go on clearance on the day after Valentine's Day, and then they load up on their chocolate. That was actually my parting word to my students today in class. I was like, "On you know, make sure you wait until after Valentine's Day to buy chocolate. And that was my big advice for the day. I was pretty proud of myself. I thought, well, you know. <clears throat> I just want to say partly, you know, for me, when Valentine's Day comes around, I always hated that as a holiday because I was like, this is, I feel like I'm being played. So I thought of murder frequently. And so that's why the organ of murder just made so much sense, I think, as, uh, as, as, our, as our topic today. And yet, you know, honestly, most of the murdering seemed to happen not to the criminals, so, or I mean, it happened to the criminals more, yeah. more so than, than the criminals doing. Well, and I'll say this is also the, the week that is the one year anniversary of the book's publication. So for me... If you want to celebrate something else this Valentine's, you can celebrate the one-year anniversary of 
an organ of murder. And, I, I, um, you know, so I'll take it. I have some, some fun uh, advice. And if you have any last questions, um, oh, <laughs> Leanne says, apologies if I participated too much. It was those three cups of coffee. It's never too much. It's never too much. Lexi says, happy anniversary for book. Mm -hmm. uh, book anniversary. Um, and, and it has been ordered. And many of you, um, you know, you can order them both from Loganberry if you're in the United States and from Fox Lane Books if you're in the UK. And they have signatures on them because <clears throat> Courtney kindly sent us signatures. They have little skulls drawn on them. They so do have if that's a if that's a selling point, um, I had a lot of fun. <laughs> um, I have a couple of announcements. If you have last questions, please go ahead and put them in the chat now uh, while I'm giving my my uh, announcements, and then we can ask them. And then uh, we'll be ending our set today with. You might have noticed I've gotten a little bit involved with clay. <clears throat> yes. So uh, so we'll be we'll be we'll be showing that little little featurette, but there will be more. Um, there will be small clay Davies in the future and small clay me's. It's going to be ridiculous. Um, but some announcements. So <clears throat> one thing is that, again, Charming Disaster, don't forget that concert is coming up. Those of you who are subscribers, you're already taken care of. I'll be sending you the link. If you're not a subscriber, please go ahead and sign up while we still have the discounted rate. And I also want to tell you that um, I found out I do have some more t-shirt sizes. Some of you were uh, trying to buy t-shirts and I was out of sizes. I got some more in. Please go look at the site. If you don't see a size you want, you can contact me and I'll let you know if, if it's coming in in the new order. Um, I'm about to run a sale on the mugs. J Davey has a mug. I think it's on his back shelf there. Yes. Right there. Bring it closer. Can you bring it closer without Maybe. unplugging yourself? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> We'll find out how good you, it's like limbo. <clears throat> Thank you. So there, um, there's going to be a sale. There's blue ones, yellow ones, and black ones. And those are going to go on sale next week. So be looking for that. Um, some of you already have them. Uh, maybe you want a second one. Maybe you want mm -hmm. them for friends. So those will, those will be going on sale. The other February event we're doing is The Wedge by Scott Carney. It is a really interesting book uh, about the body and its relationship to our environment that we live in. And it's... It's got some weird, I, I spent a lot of time like sitting in a corner going, whoa. So um, I really think that you guys are going to enjoy that. Don't forget about that event. Please do come back for that one. Um, and uh, I think that's all my announcements. Are there other questions? What do we have? Uh, no, they're all excited. Some people have ordered the book. Um, got their tickets. Got their tickets for the upcoming show. So yeah. Good. Downloaded the audiobook. Great. I'm actually listening to the audiobook for Scott Carney. Um, the, I will warn you: do not run on the treadmill while listening to the audiobook with Scott Carney, because like then when you have a moment, you're like, "What?" You fall off the back. Um, <laughs> I ran. I fell off the back a lot with Mary Roach's book, um, and I fell off the back. I think we need to get you some safety rails for your for that treadmill. Luckily, it's that not might be worth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, At least the mattress behind you. Actually, Leanne asked, how did you hear about the book club? And I think partly, I, I think I may have headhunted. Did I headhunt you? I, I, you know what? We're mutuals on Twitter. I'm very online. I'm terrible. Um, yes, I tweet yeah. way too much. But um, <laughs> so part of it is, is we follow each other. So I remember seeing the first tweets when you were even just thinking about uh, Peculiar. And I think I like immediately sent you a message. And I was like, I want in. I want in. And you were like, the first season's already booked. Do you want to be in the second season? And I was like, yes, yes, yes. The sooner, like the sooner the better. So I was super excited about that. And I also had an article in Brandy's journal that she edits. So I feel like we, that which is partially why I felt comfortable like bothering you on Twitter. I was like, she has received emails from me. So 
that's okay. Um, and also, you know, I just, uh, you know, I do a lot of, if, if any of you out there work at libraries or museums or you teach, I'm always happy to come and give talks about, about phrenology or um, my new project, which is all about uh, sort of how doctors feel about their patients in the 19th century. Um, and uh, I'm very online. If you follow my Twitter, you will find, uh, sometimes I will tweet real things about like my book and stuff. Mostly I tweet about my dog and, and uh, who is a beagle, the most spoiled beagle on earth. Her name is Winnie. And right now she's very into sweaters. So if that's the thing you're into, um, come to my Twitter and you can witness a dog who likes sweaters. So. And we, we will say for our podcast listeners, it's at Dr. or Dr. Underscore C underscore Thompson. Yes, there that's me. And I'll also plug just real quick because it's up on the screen. Um, one of the side projects I, I run is a conference series called Archival Kismet. And you can visit us at archivalkismet.org. And Kismet is an all online twice yearly, super informal, um, history ish conference series. That's free. <laughs> it's available to anybody who wants to join. And basically the concept when we came up with is why can't we just talk about cool stuff like history show and tell? So it's an unconference conference and it's open to all sorts of folks who want to present, but also anyone who wants to join, you don't have to be a historian. You don't have to be a professor. It's a lot of fun. And again, it is free. And Anya, who just, who, who commented has presented and participated. Um, it's totally free to participate in. We already have our, our, our people who are going to be presenting this spring and there will be a call out for people in the fall. But, um, much like I think the spirit of peculiar, we try to be very unconferency and right. keep things fun. So if you like learning about weird stuff in history and hearing a bunch of history nerds go on about cool shit they found in the archives, then that's the place to be. And, and it's all free. So our folklore, we have, uh, yeah. Yeah, we love open. a good folklore. And if you if you check out the website, you can get a sense about, I mean, this oh. this spring we're, we have everything on the docket from somebody who's going to be talking about dildos and we've got fossils and we've got a lot of death. Those can be uh, so there's there's just a lot there, really. Like every everything's going to be there. So do join us. Um, we like peculiar people within kids. And I can... She indeed very peculiar and a tour guide. So we're we're all we're all good there. Um, we have we have good good peoples. Um, this is fun members of the history teacher conference. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is this is like the fun version. And uh, it, again, it's just archivalkismet.org. But there's also links to it. We have a Twitter that's just archivalkismet on Twitter, and it's all linked to through there. So yeah. please come and I, join I us. You you have a rich mine here of folks who are who are likely to be very interested. And I will say that the the way that the the chat works here is basically that's what we encourage at Kismet. We encourage people to post their their reactions and their thoughts, and to make jokes and to post dog pictures and stuff. We're very informal, and we embrace that. It's the anti-conference conference. So. Come join us. We are the anti-Valentine's uh, Day Valentine's Day party. <laughs> Love so, it. And and most of what we do, I have to say, the Peculiars are very well informed about the usual daily duties of my cat. Um, <laughs> very important. Sort of unofficial um, spokesperson, spokescat for, for the Peculiar Book Club, uh, actually features in our final video that we're about to show you, which is um, uh, like four seconds that took four hours. So... 
Um, though uh, it is, as always, um, a lot of fun to have everybody online. We're going to end with this video and then we're going to come back just to say goodbye. So anybody else that has uh, last things to, to add or comments or questions, please do. But first, Bart meets our squid friend, Julius. So, <clears throat> yes, that's the thing we do now. Um, I love that. Thank you. Oh, man, can you make a phrenology room next? Actually, so what I have down, um, so those are, there's a lot of, actually, Davey, if you can pick up some of the comments and toss them in. Um, oh, yeah. I, what I've done is I've created different rooms. So there's a, there is an anatomy room that has a phrenology head on the wall, actually. Um, there is uh, a, a fossil room with Mary Anning. There's Zenny's um, astronomy room. There is an experiment room that has like a bunch of coils and wires and weird stuff going on. And then there's uh, a poisons, potions, and honey room uh, on the bottom floor, as well as um, Davy's recording studio and the uh, the writing room. And um, I think that's I think that's everything. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, yeah. so, <laughs> you guys got. You have to know. You have to know how fun it is to be Brandy's partner in this. When all of a sudden, like, it, it'll be like the middle. That it'll be like, I'm doing the claymation now. <laughs> I mean, I have to be like, honest. Okay, like, I'm. Keep up. I'm thinking, like, what am I doing with my free time? Like, watching Futurama. I mean, I should be making stop motion <laughs> videos. There is, in fact, a Tesla. That it, that's what it is. It's a Tesla coil. That's I'm wonderful. Tesla. I'm so jealous. I need a. Man, I need a new hobby, apparently. Gosh. Um, I didn't mean to pick up a new hobby. It just keeps happening. Uh, like, it just happens. I don't know. I think that's called pandemic. <laughs> I don't know. I, I have a tendency to do this way a little bit anyway. But, um, but yeah, um, I decided that we needed claymation in our lives and also that there's not a physical studio. We, we want to meet our peculiars so badly. Like, we really would love to do an actual physical thing, but it's very difficult to do. So, um, so what I've done is I built us a clubhouse. So it's our peculiar clubhouse. It's just very small. And um, there will be, I actually have a small Davy now as well, which is really funny. <laughs> and I have a small me and there's a small thing. There's a small lady pause as well um, that I've been putting together. And I was actually working on clay heads this morning instead of like writing my book review that I'm supposed to be Right. I mean, I, as a book review editor, I'm going to tell you that's a better use of your time, probably. probably. <laughs> Make the clay heads. The Wall Street Journal might disagree. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah. you know, you know. <clears throat> yes. We all so, have priorities. Yeah. So I know my priorities are like create book club, mm -hmm. 
book club clubhouse that that's a you know with bart in it because you all love bart of course i feel like bart is the mascot of the claymation house definitely he he is he also gets into it he wants to be in the clay at all times it's very difficult like i'm literally making clay around bart who's like what's that is it me (laughs) so it adds authenticity because like little bits of fur get in there and and that is the truth i was trying to bake clay and i'm literally pop like oh it has (laughs) so anyway this has been so much fun to have you on it's been so much fun to have all of you here and i'm gonna be sending out chocolate and i hope you're drinking lots of wine and i hope all of you had a wonderful on valentine's day event and i hope you'll come back for the 17th as well um once again if you're weird your family. You got the blue bottle blues when you wake up in the night. Don't make a big mistake because you can never make it right. When you reach out for the vial, feel the ridges in the glass. It's a matter of survival, baby. Better watch your back. There is no There is no, no antidote.